Hello and welcome back to Redirecting. My name is Andrew East and this is a show where we sit down with celebrities, athletes, entrepreneurs, really anybody who has experienced a pivot or change in life. I call these changes redirections and at some point or another we all go through them and so I want to sit down with people who have made it through these changes well in order to glean wisdom but also hear some pretty good stories along the way. Today uh, is an episode that I geeked out over. Um, I love the YouTube talk, the YouTube community and so I sit down with Reed Duxer who is really doing some innovative and unique things in the space of content creation and uh, and really the creator space if you will of digital media and so Reed's story is this. He was playing college football, got hurt, but he had this parallel passion of the YouTube creator space. And so he started kind of pursuing that and got exposure to people like Dude Perfect. And now he's the manager of some top YouTube talent. You may have heard of Mr. Beast. Reed works with him. And he also has this investment fund. And so anyway, they're doing a bunch of really cool, innovative things in the space. And so you'll hear me geek out over some of that as well. If you want to find out more about Reed and his company, Night Media, I'll link information on both down below, but i um, appreciative of Reed for taking the time. And if you haven't subscribed to the show or given it a rating, please do so on whatever platform you're listening on. It really helps us out. But let's go ahead and jump into this one with Reed Duxer. Reed, it's a pleasure to meet you, man. Hey, listen, I know we, uh, we both have similar backgrounds in football, and I was looking at your stats back at North Dakota State. I know you're a wide receiver. I came across an article saying... Um, former bison walk on works his way into playing time. First of all, I love that you're that kind of guy. Second of all, it did mention that you ran a 4.840 yard dash, which have we gotten that time down? Have we, have we, like, <laughs> are we faster now? <laughs> Man, I haven't ran a 40 in seven years. So I I'd hope so. Um, uh, that was, I can't even remember when that article came out. That was probably my freshman year. I think the reason it came out was because we were playing the University of Kansas and I, I was a redshirt freshman and I was starting the game. And it was like the first time a redshirt freshman had started at NDSU on like that level, like playing in front of that crowd. Uh, and I think that's why the article came out. We ended up winning that game six to three, uh, believe it or not. It was wild. Yeah, Kansas. Wow. It was, it was um, first game of the year. And then we turned around, I think, two years later and beat Iowa State when they were ranked number 13. So we, we had a we had a crazy run for a while. So what 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 ended your uh, your football? Was it the finger? No, I mean, I, I got pretty banged up. I think, you know, I, I loved football. It's something that that I played all through high school and played in college. I kind of got to a point where I was thinking about my future and it was very unclear of what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I, I started talking to my parents about it. And I was honestly pretty scared that I was going to end up graduating with a degree in exercise science, playing five years of football and really having nothing to do after that. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and you see this with most athletes now, and there's actually a company I work with here in town that like prepares them for life after sports. And it's not just football, it's everything. Right. And so I got really afraid of what life would be like after I was done playing football. Cause I knew I wasn't going to play at the next level at the NFL And I just started to prepare for that next phase of my life. And football was no longer the number one thing that I was focused on. And that's when I knew I had to just make a pivot. Hold up. Do you know Joe Gilliland? Joe Gilliland. Why does that sound familiar? And uh, shoot, Brett, um, who was an old Baylor quarterback? Oh, shoot. Oh, man. Now now you're hitting me with Texas football knowledge. You're going to get me in trouble. You're not. Well, you're living in Dallas. So I figured. Anyway, they are doing a similar thing. We're preparing athletes for careers afterwards. Um, dude, I, I was fortunate 
to have the experience of being picked up in the NFL. And then I view it as fortunate that I didn't really make it in my first seven go around signing with teams because the further you get into a sport, the harder it is, or really the further you get into any career, the harder it is to pivot out of it. Right. And so I think, you know, clearly you've, you've established yourself well in the space that you're currently in. I do have to say, so I know your story fits the theme of the show really well with being redirected out of football into um, sports agency and representation, which I'd love to talk about that into your current digital uh, representation. Um, But there are some episodes that I do and some interviews that I set up that are strictly for selfish reasons. And so background on how I came across Reed is I had been like, so Sean and I have been doing YouTube for like five years and the first three years of doing that, dude, I was a geek about all the back end stuff and learning about just like the, the space in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the most recent two years, like the, the, the 2019, 2020, I just kind of lost that. We just got caught up in our routine, but I came across your podcast, creator economics and bro, it sparked that passion in me again, just because the way you guys approach, um, you know, the digital space and the way you think about it is really, really different. And then the actions that you take on top of that are just exciting. And it, it really gets my juices flowing. I mean, I, I would love we, if we could, usually we kind of spend time talking about different uh, portions of your career on the show, but I would love if you kind of give us the, the uh, abridged version of how you got to where you are now. So we could really dig into the YouTube portion of things. Yeah, now I'm gonna pull up your guys' channel. Now we have to dig into the channel later because now, now oh, I'm curious. So, dog. No, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean a, a brief a brief explanation. So played college football. I, I ended up uh, actually becoming the agent for some of the guys that I played with, uh, and then some of them played in the NFL, some of them played in the CFL, and I ended up meeting a YouTube group named Dude Perfect pretty early on in my sports agent career. And I was working at a sports agency that represented Marcus Allen, Tim Brown, Barry Sanders. And I was trying to get Barry Sanders in one of their videos. And that's how the relationship started with Dude Perfect. And I became so fascinated with this industry. And this was 20, early 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dude Perfect had probably 2 million subscribers back then. Still pretty new. Mr. Beast had probably 10K subscribers at the time. Uh, and so... I I became fascinated with this industry and I started to do more research on it. And I ended up leaving the job as a sports agent because I I understood that like eventually attention was going to be what everyone was after. And I thought that these YouTubers and these YouTube channels were specifically focused on just grabbing kids attention and they were creating content every single day, which as an athlete, you only play on Sundays, maybe Thursdays if you're in the NFL. It's really tough to do that and command that, say, 10, 12-year-old's attention every single day. And so that's why I initially left and I saw an opportunity to form Night Media in late 2015. And I just started to run with it. And we, I started signing a few different creators in the gaming space. And, and now we work uh, with 20 creators and a bunch of different verticals. And our focus is really on entrepreneurs, not really creators. We represent people that want to do things outside of content. And so what I mean by that is you take a Mr. Beast who is on top of the world right now on YouTube, but his business actually should be built out similar to a media company. He should have his merchandise, his licensing, his his venture portfolio, which we're working on right now. And we invest in a lot of different software companies. And so, so we're like building out all these other subsidiaries for him. And depending on when this podcast comes out, we'll have launched Ghost Kitchens. So we're launching 300 ghost kitchens on Saturday, 
called Mr. Beast Burgers. So it's going to be his like restaurant, um, the digital restaurant service that we're launching into. Hopefully have six to 700 by the beginning of next year. Uh, we're launching a, a different software game called Finger on the App 2. We did the first one a couple months ago. We're going to do the second one right after Christmas. And we have all these different projects that we're launching throughout the year. And that's like where I think the real value is. And that's, that's where Night Media is focused. Hold on. Explain the ghost kitchen concept to me. You kind of breezed over mm-hmm. that and said it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so think about a restaurant that has no physical locations. It's all digital locations and it's serviced through Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates. Uh, and so you, you basically use the backend services of, of restaurants like their kitchen where say it's like an Applebee's and the Applebee's is making say chicken strips and you launch a chicken strips uh, restaurant and you use the back services of that restaurant to then do a fully digital restaurant. And so that's what we're doing. Not saying we're using Applebee's, but we're using different local restaurants to basically help us launch these digital, digital Mr. Beast burgers. So it's so it's interesting because you're what, 29 right now? 30? Uh, 31. Okay. And you've been doing the digital side of things for how long? Six years? Five? Coming up on six. Yeah. What do you attribute the fact that you have such a different approach to this space because so Sean, I've been doing it for five years and we're just now kind of to the point where, um, I mean, maybe you're a genius. I would love to hear that, but we're just now to the point where it's like, Oh, what is the, the, the really large play that we can do with this attention. Right. And it, it, but it took us having to go through steps, A, B, C, and D to get here. You know what I'm saying? So how did you fast forward to this point? Through a lot of research and work, and I think just forming my own opinions on the industry, there, there wasn't really a book or there wasn't a class or there wasn't anyone talking about this when I was first coming up. I had to figure it all out for myself. And now like we launched Creator Economics is really like an outlet for Blake and I to meet people, but also like educate on what this industry can eventually become. I think it's still very early. I don't even think we've rounded first, first base yet of like what digital creators can accomplish. And so for me, I think that's what I attribute the lot, a lot of the success to is like, I just kind of paved my own path. And I think Mr. Beast is a good example of someone who's like actually writing the book about like how you take a digital creator and turn them into like a multimedia company. And we're working on a bunch of different projects with him right now. Um, and I, I think a lot of this is just like, there wasn't anyone out there as a sports agent. You can read a book on Drew Rosenhaus, Lee Steinberg, all these like old OG guys that were sports agents in the nineties and early two thousands. There, there wasn't anyone that existed uh, when I met dude. Perfect. It was so new. Who are, so you mentioned some of you're doing with Mr. Beast. Um, I know you've had Leon Hart on your show. You've had Nate shot on your show. Can you list some of the, some of the creators that, that, you're aware of who are are also on the cutting edge of of using their digital attention as you say yeah so i'll give you a few examples of people like outside of uh the normal niches of content so one is called guga foods it's actually a it's a channel based on different steaks and wagyu's and like uh, different cooking methods of how to cook steak pulls like a million to 2 million views of video. It's still, I would consider it a small channel. And now he's like building out these like cookbooks and spices and all these other things. And another good example is a good friend of ours named Mark Rober, who actually has a large channel, um, but he just launched a monthly subscription service where he's basically going to take people behind the scenes of how he does these experiments and how he builds these videos. And so he's basically putting up a paywall service, um, 
to allow people to then subscribe and to, to get access to other things outside of his videos. And so those are like two good examples that are top of mind for me um, of people like kind of outside of this like gaming lifestyle space. Like Mark is just all into like education, science-based education. And Guga is like in this like little niche cooking space. But I, I think it goes across a lot of different verticals. You just have to get creative. I thought you were anti-paywall kind of guy. Yeah. So I, I'm, I am for certain reasons. Uh, I'm anti paywall for like Jimmy putting his content behind a paywall when I believe, and he believes it should always be free. I think there's a world where he eventually puts up a paywall to give people access to other things that they can't normally get. I just like sitting in my position. We just need to provide a ton of value if we're going to go down that route. Right. I would never want to like launch a subscription service and he just has like extra footage that he throws behind there. That's not worth it. So we'd have to like build out the whole ecosystem to like what that would look like. And then I think it's, it's worth it for us to charge five, $10, but yeah, we're just not there yet. So one of the episodes on your podcast was Mm -hmm. should influencers take cash or equity with deals? Yeah. And so I've struggled with this question for years and I really found your and Blake's conversation um, thoughtful, but it's, it's interesting um, when maybe not direct equity, but maybe it's a creator who's looking to start a venture and I'm not sure what the, you know, the pro and con list you've built out is, but if, if say Jimmy could take, or Mr. Beast could take, either a big chunk of cash and just do three videos on YouTube versus invest a big chunk of cash and also risk and also forfeit that chunk of cash you could have gotten from the other company who might be a competitor. Mm -hmm. How do you like, do you weigh this out and you're like, Hey, you know what? We're going to do this deal because we have influence here, or we're going to build this company because we actually have a ton more influence. Are you tracking me here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, we have a whole model for this. So uh, it really, so, so you have to break down like the big categories for that specific influencer. Right. And let's just take, you said Jimmy, so let's give him an example. So it's like automotive banking um, payments and the payments can be broken into like a ton of different categories. And so we break it down into like categories and then amount of money that we can potentially make in those categories. And so when we're looking to make investments or to take equity, you have to be really careful with the big categories. And let's just take banking, for example. So banking is a massive category, not only from an ad spend perspective, but also like influencers who can actually do these deals. And Honey is now kind of looped into that because they're owned by PayPal. And Jimmy has a big relationship with Honey. So we have to be really careful with those big categories where you take equity because you don't want to take an equity deal. It's like take your chips off the table when there's a lot of cash to be made. And so there's a lot of give and take with this. I I would tell most influencers 90% of the time, take the cash because a lot of these like startups and software companies fail. Unless you really believe in the product and you think the deal is good in relation to the amount of cash you can get over in this other business, um, then that's when we start weighing these things out of like, okay, do we take this equity and invest in this company or do we like take this cash? But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard, like nuanced question to answer, but yeah. we're like in all of these negotiations right now with so many different businesses of like, do we invest? We also have an internal venture fund. So we invest in a lot of different companies off our balance sheet. And so a lot of times if our clients are like taking equity or advisor shares, something like that, we'll also invest in the company. 
Cause it's like, Oh, if they're going to bet, like we're going to bet on it as well. Uh, it's just, we've had to be really careful with like what bets we make. Okay. So now, uh, man, uh, there's, there's so much conversation to be held around that. Because... Yeah, th- this is like a podcast in itself right here, just on this category. Uh, Cause I've had I so many influencers reach out to me and they're like, should I take equity in this business? What should I do? And it's, it's really difficult because the majority, like I said, the majority of those companies are going to fail. Um, especially like we're looking a lot into like Neobank right now. And it's like, there's a lot of companies in the Neobank, like Chime, who's probably going to go public here pretty quickly. But then there's also a lot of bank companies like Chase and JP Morgan. And like some of these people that will pay Jimmy a lot of money to support their product. So we're like currently like up in the air right now with this like whole banking space. But it's, it's also, you know, how to, how to structure the deal is tough because if you were going to go to JP Morgan Chase and be like, Hey, instead of giving us X amount of dollars, let's just, can you just give us equity in the company? <laughs> like, yeah. like not, not, not every company is going to go for that. So I, I just, the, how to approach having a strategic partnership, but also a long-term partnership that it's just, a, it's a, it's an art, man. It's crazy. Yeah. So another good example too, is something that was in the news. It's called Backbone. So it's a product that I invested in, Jimmy invested in, a lot of our other clients invested in, in the gaming space. When we looked at it, it's like, it's like a, on the surface, it looks like a mobile controller. Um, And it's really what it is that there's a software component to it, but we kind of looked and we were like, okay, competitively, who would we do a deal with in this category? And outside of Razor and one other, there really wasn't anyone. So we were like, okay, this is a safe, not only investment for us to make, where clients are going to take equity, we're going to bet on mobile gaming in the future. And we think this is the horse to bet on. Those are like the scenarios that we really like. Hey, so quick caveat on that coming from the sports, more traditional agency side of things. So mm-hmm. my wife, Sean was an Olympian. I come from the NFL and you know, you sign a five-year exclusive Nike deal where you can't wear any other athletic apparel contrast that experience to what, what you see in the digital world. And we would never do that deal ever. Right. It would have to be the <laughs> well, craziest amount of money. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and here's why, because we have our own distribution. We run our own Shopify accounts. The guys do very well selling their own merchandise and apparel. Some of them actually launch it with their brand. I'm wearing like hundred thieves right now. So it's yeah. like a good example of why like Nate shot would never sign a Nike deal. Cause he does his own apparel business. Uh, and so in the digital space, it's actually all about running your own business as opposed to like signing with Nike, Adidas, like it's just, it would never happen uh, unless I, unless it's like some situation like the rock has with Under Armour where it's like huge amount of cash. Plus he gets royalties. Plus you get to partner with Under Armour. It would have to be something like that, or it just wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Side note on, on uh, Matt, we met three years ago doing the anti-gravity plane. You ever seen the, seen the, uh, yeah. We did that. It was the most random group. It was like I, Justine, and Matt, and like uh, Yannette Garcia. Do you know the? <laughs> anyway, it was wild. But I would highly recommend. Yeah, I would love to do that. Jim, yeah. Jimmy and I actually tried. He tried looking into that for a video, mm-hmm. and it ended up being like three hundred thousand dollars. So he ended up passing at the time. It's, but yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> it's pretty expensive. Um, all right, so you. Explain Night Media to us, if you could. Just give us the the uh, the bio. Ooh, it's tough now. Uh, at the surface, we're a management company. So at our core, that's our core business. Uh, we only represent digital creators. I said it earlier, we only represent entrepreneurs. And that's really true. We don't represent creators. We represent people that want to be more, that want to take risk. And so 
Night Media right now, it's uh, it's a little complicated, but it's basically acts as a holding company and we represent influencers, but we also own companies and incubate companies with them. And so we have a lot of subsidiaries now that we've either started with a client or invested in with a client. Uh, and so that's really what Night Media looks like right now. We've made a lot, we've been incredibly aggressive in the last year and a half, hiring new managers, biz dev, product. We just hired a president, Ezra Cooperstein, who was one of the founders of full screen and he ended up exiting after they sold to AT&T. Uh, and so we just brought him on and he's changed our business in so many ways I won't even get into, but that that's what night media looks like right now. So when you start these ventures with the entrepreneurs, as you say, mm -hmm. what's your grand vision? Like do you start with an end in mind or, or, What's the in some? Yes. Yeah. So we kind of look at it in two ways. There's like, is there, is there an end goal of potentially building a business that has sustainable value that we can eventually sell? Or is this a cash business? And there's like two, and we, we do both. Uh, so we have a few like businesses right now that just kind of churn cash and there's really no value there outside of the cash that they make. And then we have a few businesses where we're actually like building IP or incubating different consumer products. And those are the ones that we see a lot of sustainable value in even after that influencer stops making videos that that company is going to be making 10, 20, $30 million a month um, just off this consumer product. And so a lot of our focus right now is on those businesses. Have you put thought into how the cash only businesses might cannibalize the more long-term equity place? Uh, sometimes, but we usually the cash only businesses are like us doing percentage deals with, with a larger company where we get a royalty or a revenue split. So we're pretty careful with like, which one, what those look like. Uh, and most of them are like in the mobile gaming space, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I have, we have clients that run Minecraft servers and Roblox games. And again, another podcast episode of like how you monetize all these like different games within these sandbox platforms. Uh, but those are a lot of our cash businesses right now. All right. I'm going to run a concept by you read <clears throat> actually what, wait, me. before I get there pause. I'm, I'm going to ask that in a little bit. Are there, as far as brand integrations or partnerships, is there a cap or a limit that you think should exist? For how, for what a specific influencer? So say, is say every single one of uh, Leonhardt's videos is sponsored. Mm -hmm. this uh, I would say it would be seen as negative. His fan base would see it as negative because they would think he's selling out to some extent, depending on who the partner is. Uh, now I will say Jimmy taking sponsorships has not been seen as negative because we give away most of the money or the money's used to like fund videos, like buying $600,000 worth of fireworks for that July 4th video. Uh, so it's, it's seen less negative on his channel, but yes, we, we try not to like over cannibalize a client's channel. But I would say most of our clients, like it's like every fourth or fifth video is usually sponsored. That's the rhythm about 20%, 25% of inventory, as we say. It's a little higher if they upload less. Jimmy's only uploading 25 to 30 videos a year. Whereas someone yeah. like Preston or typical gamers uploading 350, 400. So it, it changes uh, a little bit based on your upload cadence. But yeah, I would say 20 to 30% of videos are sponsored. One thing that I think is good in the space, well, first of all, going traditional advertising to me just seems so 
insane now when you have this whole digital world that's like I just feel like there's so much more control so many more analytics and metrics that you can pull Mm -hmm. um but I do think that the introduction of ads is now I think like from an audience standpoint almost expected from bigger creators I hope I hope I'm not wrong um, yeah, but, yeah, you're right. But but it, so there's a difference between like a pre-roll, mid-roll ad in a YouTube video as opposed yes. to like the influencer reading and a brand yes. integration. Yeah, uh, you just want to. I, I think you put ads and mid-rolls on every single video. It's yes. seen as normal now, but you, the brand integrations are the ones you probably want to be a little careful with. Yeah. Um, okay. Transition question: Who's harder to manage, digital talent or NFL talent? <laughs> oh, you're gonna get me in trouble here. Uh, <laughs> gosh, they're so different. Um, it is. Man. I don't know how I want to answer this. I, I think for me, it was really hard to manage football players right out of the gate, and we had a lot of big name players because they were already making so much money, and most of the guys we worked with got drafted in the first round, and at that time, yeah. there was really no rookie wage scale, so they would sign these like thirty million dollar deals. And then they'd be like, all right, I don't care about anything else. Like I got my money. And so it was really hard to manage that because you'd have a massive deal with, like you said, Nike or Under Armour, and they just wouldn't care. Right. And so that's one thing I had to get used to right out of the gate. I didn't last long. I was like in it for a year, year and a half. And I was like, I got to transition out of this, but it was very difficult for me to get used to managing NFL athletes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a different world because they're disciplined and one, and they're one thing. Mm -hmm. which is why it's hard for them to transition out a lot of times. But also like, I just look at so many of these athletes, Olympians, I think in particular should really press into the digital space, but are leaving a massive opportunity on the table by not being as disciplined in building their digital brand or creating content. It's just like, gosh, huge opportunity missed. Anyway. And, and just one more thing on that point too. I, I think it's, it's also, it doesn't help that a lot of the agents in that industry are very <clears> traditional. You do the contract, you make two to 3%, you do the Nike deal, the yeah. trading card deal with tops, like you make your 10, 20, 30%, whatever that is. And that's really it. Like these like mm-hmm. agents, they're not thinking about like, how do I grow this person's business outside of football? They, they don't see any upside in it for them. And so I think a lot of the managers and agents in traditional sports right now, they just don't think about it like a, like someone in my position or even like a YouTuber thinks about their business. Cause they're, they're, they're playing football seven months out of the year. And then their time off is their time off. They don't want to do anything else. They just want to yeah. play football. Right. And so it's just, it's, it's really difficult. So until it matures a little bit and people understand that like, yeah, Odell Beckham could probably pull 40 million views a month on YouTube if he put some time and effort into it. I think that's when it'll eventually change. Well, I think it's somewhat of a different story if you're like a first round draft pick or, you know, top 1% of the elite level, just because you really like from a financial standpoint, don't need to like, okay, I signed $30 million. I don't, this is probably what you should focus on because your value is highest there, but um, it's just, yeah, I, I, I could ramble on about that. Cause I feel pretty passionate. Like, I, I don't know. I love, I love football and the people that I was around, but now the YouTube community, dude, like, as you know, the entrepreneur is, mm-hmm. I can't freaking say that. I've never been able to say that word. So we'll just entrepreneurism. Like, they, yeah, they, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that and the creativity and just the ambition I, I yeah. just find addicting. But let me tell you, let me run an idea by you. Okay. So you guys did a, uh, an episode on creator economics about collab houses. Okay. Wait, yep. what's your, what's your general vibe? Huh. Uh, this is a massive topic to, to unwind here. Um, my general vibe is I think they work depending on the structure of the deals with the house organization and the talent. Uh, there's reasons why team 10 didn't work and there's reasons why phase does work. I think what phase does really well is phase gives the creators that enter phase a lot of upside in building their brand in doing collabs with other people within phase. And they're not overly greedy with what they take. I know there's all this like thing about the Tifu deal, but like a normal phase deal is not like that when they bring in a big creator. Now, if you look at like other collab houses, uh, I think they've gotten a little crazy with the amount or the percentage or whatever they take. And then once an influencer blows up, there's a lot of negativity there of like, okay, now I'm giving 40 to 50% of everything back to this house. And then there's like the third house now that's like Sway House Hype House that has basically said, no structure, no organization. We're just going to like live in the same house and collab together. And it's worked really great. There's just no real value outside mm -hmm. of selling a hoodie with the hype house. So I think it works. It just really all comes down to structuring the deal and like what you want to get out of this house long-term. Okay. So of those three buckets, well, first of all, is there another option that exists? It's the better because option three doesn't really sound good. If you're the manager of that house or the creator, mm -hmm. option one is a nightmare option two of, uh, I think you said phased is doing it well. Is that? Yeah. I mean, even hundred thieves to some example is, is a content machine at this point where they've paid creators to come into a hundred thieves exclusively and film content on their channel and build out exclusive shows to take another example. I think barstool sports has done a really good job. I won't call them a content house, but they're a content company <laughs> and they yeah. do a really good job of building talent internally. I, I think they said, Dave said something like one in 10 work, right? So if you start 10 podcasts, one's going to do really well. And that's kind of become their, their MO of like how they build talent and call her daddy's been one of those 10 that's just exploded and they've been able to restructure that deal. So they, at least Alex has stayed. Uh, but that's like a good example. I think if anything, like Barstool is doing that really well and hundred thieves is like right behind them and building out shows and, and different talent. And so their model is, Hey, we're a loose collab house where we like, we're all under the same brand that we create similar yeah, themed content. Explain their models basically, their models basically, we're going to incubate shows and talent. So if we think this person's <clears throat> talented, they're going to come in, we're going to give them all the infrastructure they need to start a successful show or podcast. Right. And then we're going to be the engine behind them that markets and like throws gasoline on the fire once this thing starts hitting. Uh, and then those revenue splits differ, but they're basically termed contracts, right? They sign them to like a one or two year contract. When that contract's up, they renegotiate it. Where in the past, like we've seen a lot of these, these content houses, you know, previous to like all these other ones, like where they would try and do these like perpetuity deals where it's like, we're taking this for the rest of your uh, life. And it just hasn't worked out. Well, the bar still plays salaries to the talent, right? They do. In a lot of cases, they'll pay them a salary. Plus they'll take a percentage of all show revenue. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think a family friendly blog house exists? Is, is uh, there does it a, exist? No, 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 no. Sorry. Is it, is there a potential for that? Could it work? Oh yeah. 
All day. Yeah. I think it's, it all just comes down to how you structure that deal. Um, but if like, there's a massive creator at the top and you're finding families that you think are fun and engaging and you're bringing them into this content house and depending on how you structure those deals. Yeah. I think that could work really well. It's it just like Blake and I talked about this a lot on the podcast. It all just comes down to the structure and like how you're treating those people internally. Yeah. So from well, you'll see when you do a, a, a channel dig, if you choose to do so. We, um, we're currently in process of, exp- of exploring what that would look like to do a family-friendly mm-hmm. uh, collab house. It would not be like a TikTok house. People wouldn't live there just because of the nature of the talent. That, you, know, you don't want three. <laughs> like, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, so, But Nashville is kind of a unique area where there are a good number of uh, family creators. And so our, Sean and I's mission is to essentially create content that's encouraging and uplifting uh, to families and, and like increases that connection in whatever way possible, right? And, and we kind of hit this wall last year where we realized, oh my gosh, our experience is like this big. Like there's everyone, we come from mid Midwest families, like middle-class Midwest families, and there's so many more people out there how can we create more family content that encourages other type of families and so that's what we're working towards now um, is creating this space where other people with different backgrounds could i don't like just help each other out and so clearly we have a lot of more thinking to do about it reed but we're excited about it i mean what like for you guys like what's the goal like what's the goal of the, of the, let's just say content house. Yeah. To create like, to honestly, we have realized we've been the beneficiaries of an awesome community just strictly based off. We don't do family vlogging. I think there's a lot of toxic things about that, that from mm-hmm. like a family standpoint doesn't go over well. So we just, we create almost like weekly recaps where, you know, it's just less pressure on us. Um, but this community is like just whatever they connect with it and they learn from it and they are encouraged by it. So we want to create more of that. That's the, that's the why. And we realize that we can't be the only ones doing that. And and then you guys would basically be at the top, like at the organizational level, taking a percentage of each of the families that you bring into the house. Well, that's, that's the part we have zero clue on. Well, we're, we're just exploring like, right. I don't, I don't want it to be a, a, I don't think it's fair to be in, in perpetuity with it because no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you, I, also, I mean, we but, talked to our lawyer and they're like, I think that's, that's going to be illegal at some point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what Machinima did early on and everyone got out of those contracts, but yeah, I mean, you need to figure out like one who you're bringing in and then two, like, what does, what does that deal look like? And then what are yeah. we providing? Are we giving them editors? Are we giving them thumbnails? Are we helping with creative? Are we giving them a house? Like you just got to figure all those like little nuanced things out. So they yeah. know like, Hey, if I commit to do this, like I get all these things. Yeah. Have you enjoyed personally the, uh, so you started night, sh- uh, night media yourself. I did. I started it in my, uh, in my bedroom in 2015, worked out of my bedroom for about two years. And now you're how big? How uh, we boys? have, it's a great question. Uh, I think we're at 18. Yeah. Have in you enjoyed in Dallas? Yeah. I was looking at your career postings, by the way, you might see an application slide, slide in from, from me, but uh, there anyway, we go. Fired have, over. Yeah. <laughs> have you enjoyed the, 
growth process of transitioning from, you know, the entrepreneur who does it all to managing and high level stuff? Yeah, I have uh, for a couple of reasons. One is I was in early 2017, I was so burnt out of doing everything myself. I thought that everything was on my shoulders. This company failure or whether it failed or succeeded was completely up to me, right? Mm-hmm. I was you know, responsible for 100% of the revenue coming in. I was responsible for the vision. Uh, and then when I started hiring people, it was actually a headache initially because I felt like even though I was bringing people into the company, I was still responsible for all those things. They were just like taking like emails yeah. and other things off my plate. And when I finally started to like actually build out my executive team and, and round it out with like heads of product and now Ezra coming on as our president, a lot of, um, a lot of the shift has been to me personally focusing on like growth, culture, and vision aside from like having to run the operations and everything else. And so, yes, it was incredibly stressful early on. And I think if I'd go back, I would do it completely different because I didn't, I I should have realized at that time, like you have to actually start at the top. Like I should have hired someone to come in as a co-founder or an executive in the business to like help me grow instead of hiring a bunch of junior people that I personally had to train that all personally report to me. Um, but it's been, I mean, it's been a blessing now with the team that we currently have, but early on, it was, it was definitely a struggle. Dang, bro. That's, that's good words right now. We're, we're in the process of, so we, first of all, I, you guys talk all the time about creators not being comfortable using editors or like building on it. Yeah. So we, we jumped the editor hurdle like two years ago and it is, it's such a frustrating process, but valuable. And I was actually just talking to a someone who's writing a book and they're going through a sa- the same thing because they're using a writer where it's like, you're trying to communicate your vision to this third party. And it's like, how do you do that? There's so many hurdles that you have to jump through. But once you're able to like come up with a system and clearly communicate, Hey, this is our brand and this is what we stand for. And this is what we're aiming for. Like you, if you hire one person, it seems like it's way easier to hire two, three, and four because you've mm-hmm. already kind of done that frustrating. Well, if you hire the first person, well, I should say, but anyway, it's uh, yeah, we, but the, I never had heard that hire from the top down. That was really good. I'm well, especially that. if it's just like you, like it was just me. Right. And so I was hiring all these like junior coordinators to help. And they, they couldn't expand the business because they weren't senior enough to like help right. me think about things that I hadn't thought about yet. Like I, I knew where our business was headed, um, but I needed help expanding. Right. And so, you know, early on, like the people I hired and I was probably being a little cheap to be honest, like being like, well, I only want to pay people like this amount of money. I don't want to bring in an executive who's going to cost this amount of money. But once I was able to like, and identifying the right people is a struggle. Uh, it took yeah. a long time. But once I was able to, to think about like, okay, I need to hire some, some capable people that can actually help me expand my vision and not just come in and run my vision. That's when we kind of started to hit our stride. Where do you find those people? (laughs) It's actually mostly from referrals, uh, to be honest. Yeah. We, we don't do a, we do a little bit of recruiting now that you probably see job postings, but early on, most of my hires came through referrals. Reed, also, how do you raise money? Did you, you've done that a time or two, haven't you? How yeah, the frick so, do you do that, dog? Where do you just like, you put up signs and say, yo, seed A, series A. Yeah, I don't I, think you know, <laughs> man. 
So you, you're saying you guys want to raise capital for the potential content house? Um, no, so, uh, no, not for that, but like uh, maybe like a broader vision of, I feel yeah. like, yeah, go ahead. Raising capital is a relationships game. And I think it will continue to be that it's all about knowing the right people, getting intros to the right people and then communicating your vision. Uh, so Yes, it's really difficult. Most companies can't raise capital. It's really hard to raise capital, um, especially from seasoned investors. But for me, like, and we really haven't raised a ton of capital within Night Media. We'll probably raise in a few money for some outside subsidiaries that we started, but it's, it is really a relationship game. It really comes down to like who you know, are they willing to make those intros? Early on in my career, my motto is like, I'm going to meet everyone and I'm going to schedule meetings with anyone I can, I can send a cold email to, or that will answer it. And it really paid dividends. Like now looking today, there's a lot of those people that I still talk to that I met in 2015, 2016, that now I've been able to provide a lot of value for, they've been able to provide a lot of value Mm -hmm. along the way. Uh, But I think like that, that was a big reason that we found success is like, I was just willing to take any meeting initially when I started the business. That was, um, it was a thought that I had listening to the Nate shot interview where it's like, you know, he talks about he's, he's raised however much money and it's yeah. like freaking <laughs> what? But, and then Jake Paul did it two years ago for team 10, right? He raised like a million yeah. bucks. And it's like, I thought it was ridiculous and foolish of the investors back then. But then I honestly think that the influencer space in whatever capacity is, is right for the world of investing just because there's going to be a certain number of players who are able to capitalize on this moment. Well, but I, I mean, I, I keep saying this, like there will be a billion dollar company that is incubated by an influencer in the next five years. There will be, whether it sells for a billion dollars or it has a current valuation of a billion dollars. I don't know, but there will be a company that an influencer starts, whether that's YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, I don't know. Uh, actually, no, I think Jim shark just hit a billion dollar valuation. But it, it wasn't really incubated by an influencer. Um, I think well, he just used influencers to get them to that point. Um, but I'm saying like an influencer starting a specific business using his own or her own distribution to get that product off the ground. Like that's that's going to happen within the next few years. I mean, we're, um, we're doing that internally. That's kind of like one of our our business operations right now is like with all our clients, like what business can you start using the audience that you have? Uh, And so we go through a lot of those exercises. How can we make a billion dollars today, guys? How can we do that? (laughs) That, Um, yeah, it's not. And a lot of it's like, these guys just love it. it, They don't even care about the money. Same with me. Like I just love the industry. I have so much fun and like, I enjoy YouTube and digital media and, I, I didn't make, like, we didn't make any money in 2015, 2016, even going to 2017. Like we were, wasn't really making any money, but I just loved it. I was like, I yeah. see that this eventually will hopefully work, but I'm having so much fun that I'm not going to stop. Dude. It's so much fun. Like, it's like a, it's just like a game that you can mm-hmm. continue to learn freaking something new every day. So that's what I love about it. But Hey, so question, why are you have this company? night media why start a podcast why because you're kind of stepping into the influencer space yourself as a manager right yeah uh so 
we uh blake and i a good friend of mine who's my co-host on the podcast called creator economics we've been wanting to do this for about a year and a half and so it was never about like let's get into the content space it was more about like our frustration that nobody was actually talking about this industry and so we we just wanted to launch it just to educate people to help the the industry mature a little bit and to hopefully like spawn up the next generation of content creators and managers i think that there's a awful lot of opportunity for really good managers to step into the space and find success. And so that's another reason why we wanted to create it is like, you know, the next version of representation will hopefully listen to this podcast. Uh, and then uh, the last one was just like about access. Like I love talking to Nate shot. I love talking to Leon Hart, who's here in Dallas. Like, you know, it's just like talking to these people and getting their stories. And we just wanted to get that out there. That's great. Do you have to have facial hair to run in your posse or not? facial hair I, just, I have nothing man it's, it's, uh, dude back in the day i was looking at pictures you had the little goatee rocking and i tried i got nothing now <laughs> maybe i need to grow that again i might get made fun of on on twitter if i do that nowadays <laughs> I, got, I gotta be careful or else i turn into a meme yeah i get it man um what are you excited about what's the next what's next for you um i'm excited about a uh, young talent that we have in the company right now that will potentially be the next big talent managers over the course of the next two to three years. Like I, I really do think like night media is going to incubate the best talent, talent managers in this entire industry that like think differently than normal traditional talent managers have thought about digital talent. I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited for some of the projects that we're announcing at the end of this year, going into next year with Jimmy and Preston and a few of our other creators. And I'm really excited about our venture fund. Uh, we've started to you know, invest in different companies with our creators. I think it's something that most content creators can't really take advantage of because again, like investing is kind of like an access game. It's, it's a relationship game, but we, we get to see a lot of deals just through our access that we wanted to invest in. And so I'm also really excited about that. When usually I ask the question of when you look back on your whole career, where like three lessons you've learned through all the transitions and stuff, but I would be curious for uh, create want to be creators out there, or people just starting a channel. What three pieces of advice do you think are yeah. the most important? Uh, only get in it if you love it. If you actually don't love it, don't try because you're going to get burnt out. You're not going to want to grind through it. Like this stuff takes time. Even creator economics is like a good example of like, it's going to take time for us to pull like 50,000 to 100,000 views an episode if that's where we want it to get. Like people have to be comfortable pulling like 100 views out of the gate or if you're live streaming on Twitch, like getting five viewers. So it's like one, one lesson is like only getting in it if you actually love it. The next one is focus on getting better every single day. When you upload a video, it shouldn't be like, yeah, I uploaded a video like onto the next one. It should be like, okay, did it perform? Why didn't it perform? And let me understand how I can do it better next time. If you go back and look at like Jimmy's videos from 2015, 2016, 2017, as opposed to today, he has made massive strides uh, in just bettering his content along with a lot of creators on the internet. So that's like number two is like, you need to like actually work day in and day out making better content. And the last one that kind of goes hand in hand with that is like, know your data, understand why videos perform, why videos don't perform, really focus on YouTube, like focus on getting 
high average view duration, getting a good click through rate. So your title and thumbnail matters. Like those are the three like pillars that I think every new creator should start with. And hopefully eventually those people have success, but like it's a long road. And so they just need to understand that. Those are good. Uh, I do want to figure out some way that I can finagle the name of a good YouTube editor uh, from you. I, I not publicly, not publicly, but you okay, messed right. me up because multiple times you said that uh, <laughs> spend fifty percent of the time on the actual video and fifty percent of the time on the title and thumbnail. It's like, frick, man, we are not doing that. So I'm about to end this episode so we can talk about that. But Reed, I appreciate the time, man. I, I really love what you're doing with the creator economics and for those listening who want to learn more about Reed and the show, you can check it out in the show notes down below, but uh, this was fun, man. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Too. Thanks for having me on. This was great.